0: Book Three Part Three of Plato's Republic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Allman. The Republic by Plato. Translated by Benjamin Jowett. Book Three Part Three. And also that good and bad rhythm naturally assimilate to a good and bad style, and that harmony and discord in like manner follow style. For our principle is that rhythm and harmony are regulated by the words, and not the words by them. Just so, he said, they should follow the words. And will not the words and the character of the style depend on the temper of the soul? Yes. And everything else on the style? Yes. The beauty of style and harmony and grace and good rhythm depend on simplicity. I mean the true simplicity of a rightly and nobly ordered mind and character. Not that other simplicity which is only a euphemism for folly. Very true, he replied. And if our youth are to do their work in life, must they not make these graces and harmonies their perpetual aim? They must. And surely the art of the painter and every other creative and constructive art are full of them weaving, embroidery, architecture, and every kind of manufacture, also nature, animal and vegetable. In all of them there is grace, or the absence of grace and ugliness and discord and inharmonious motion are nearly allied to ill words and ill-nature, as grace and harmony are the twin sisters of goodness and virtue and bear their likeness. That is quite true, he said. But shall our superintendents go no further, and are the poets only to be required by us to express the image of the good in their works, on pain, if they do anything else, of expulsion from our state?" or is the same control to be extended to other artists, and are they also to be prohibited from exhibiting the opposite forms of vice and intemperance and meanness and indecency in sculpture and building and the other creative arts? And is he who cannot conform to this rule of ours to be prevented from practicing his art in our state, lest the taste of our citizens be corrupted by him? We would not have our guardians grow up amid images of moral deformity, as in some noxious pasture and their brows and feed upon many a baneful herb and flower day by day, little by little, until they silently gather a festering mass of corruption in their own soul. Let our artists rather be those who are gifted to discern the true nature of the beautiful and graceful. Then will our youth dwell in a land of health, amid fair sights and sounds, and receive the good in everything, and beauty, the effluence of fair works, shall flow into the eye and ear like a health-giving breeze from a purer region, and insensibly draw the soul from earliest years into likeness and sympathy with the beauty of reason. There can be no nobler training than that, he replied. And therefore, I said, Glaucon, musical training is a more potent instrument than any other, because rhythm and harmony find their way into the inward places of the soul, on which they mightily fasten, imparting grace, and making the soul of him who is rightly educated graceful, or of him who is ill-educated ungraceful and also because he who has received this true education of the inner being will most shrewdly perceive omissions or faults in art and nature, and with a true taste, while he praises and rejoices over and receives into his soul the good, and becomes noble and good, he will justly blame and hate the bad, now in the days of his youth, even before he is able to know the reason why, and when reason comes he will recognize and salute the friend with whom his education has made him long familiar. "'Yes,' he said,' I quite agree with you in thinking that our youth should be trained in music and on the grounds which you mention. Just as in learning to read, I said, we were satisfied when we knew the letters of the alphabet, which are very few, in all their recurring sizes and combinations, not slighting them as unimportant whether they occupy a space large or small, but everywhere either to make them out, and not thinking ourselves perfect in the art of reading until we recognized them wherever they are found. True. Or, as we recognize the reflection of letters in the water, or in a mirror, only when we know the letters themselves, the same art and study giving us the knowledge of both? Exactly. Even so, as I maintain, neither we nor our guardians, whom we have to educate, can ever become musical until we and they know the essential forms of temperance, courage, liberality, magnificence, and their kindred, as well as the contrary forms in all their combinations and can recognize them in their images whenever they are found, not slighting them either in small things or great, but believing them all to be within the sphere of one art and study, most assuredly. And when a beautiful soul harmonizes with a beautiful form, and the two are cast in one mold, that will be the fairest of sights to him who has an eye to see it? The fairest indeed, and the fairest is also the loveliest? That may be assumed and the man who has the spirit of harmony will be most in love with the loveliest, but he will not love him who is of an inharmonious soul. That is true, he replied, if the deficiency be in his soul, but if there be any merely bodily defect in another, he will be patient of it, and will love all the same. I perceive, I said, that you have or have had experiences of this sort, and I agree, but let me ask you another question. Has excess of pleasure any affinity to temperance? How can that be he replied pleasure deprives a man of the use of his faculties quite as much as pain or any affinity to virtue in general none whatever any affinity to wantonness and intemperance yes the greatest and is there any greater or keener pleasure than that of sensual love no nor a matter whereas true love is a love of beauty and order temperate and harmonious quite true he said Then no intemperance or madness should be allowed to approach true love? Certainly not. Then mad or intemperate pleasure must never be allowed to come near the lover and his beloved. Neither of them can have any part in it if their love is of the right sort? No, indeed, Socrates. It must never come near them. Then I suppose that in the city which we are founding you would make a law to the effect that a friend should use no other familiarity to his love than a father would use to his son? and then only for a noble purpose, and he must first have the other's consent, and this rule is to limit him in all his intercourse, and he is never to be seen going further, or, if he exceeds, he is to be deemed guilty of coarseness and bad taste. I quite agree, he said. This much of music which makes a fair ending. For what should be the end of music if not the love of beauty? I agree, he said. After music comes gymnastic, in which our youth are next to be trained. Certainly. Gymnastic as well as music should begin in early years. The training in it should be careful and should continue throughout life. Now my belief is, and this is a matter upon which I should like to have your opinion in confirmation of my own, but my belief is, not that the good body by any bodily excellence improves the soul, but on the contrary, that the good soul by her own excellence improves the body as far as this may be possible. What do you say? Yes, I agree. Then, to the mind, when adequately trained, we should be right in handing over the more particular care of the body, and in order to avoid prolixity, we may now only give the general outlines of the subject. Very good. That they must abstain from intoxication has been already remarked by us. For of all persons, a guardian should be the last to get drunk and not know where in the world he is. Yes, he said, that a guardian should require another guardian to take care of him is ridiculous indeed. But next, what shall we say of their food? "'For the men are in training for the greatest contest of all, are they not?' "'Yes,' he said. "'And will the habit of body of our ordinary athletes be suited to them?' "'Why not?' "'I am afraid,' I said, "'that the habit of body such as they have is but a sleepy sort of thing, "'and rather perilous to health. "'Do you not observe that these athletes sleep away their lives, "'and are liable to most dangerous illnesses if they depart, "'in ever so slight a degree, from their customary regimen?' "'Yes, I do.' Then, I said, a finer sort of training will be required for our warrior-athletes, who are to be like wakeful dogs, and to see and hear with the utmost keenness, amid the many changes of water and also of food, of summer heat and winter cold, which they will have to endure when on a campaign, they must not be liable to break down in health. That is my view. The really excellent gymnastic is twin sister of that simple music which we were just now describing. How so? Why, I conceive that there is a gymnastic which, like our music, is simple and good, and especially the military gymnastic. What do you mean? My meaning may be learned from Homer. He, you know, feeds his heroes at their feasts, when they are campaigning on soldiers' fare. They have no fish, although they are on the shores of the Hellespont, and they are not allowed boiled meats, but only roast, which is the food most convenient for soldiers, requiring only that they should light a fire, and not involving the trouble of carrying about pots and pans. True. And I can hardly be mistaken in saying that sweet sauces are nowhere mentioned in Homer. In proscribing them, however, he is not singular. All professional athletes are well aware that a man who is to be in good condition should take nothing of the kind. Yes, he said, and knowing this, they are quite right in not taking them. Then would you not approve of Syracusan dinners, and the refinement of Sicilian cookery? I think not nor, if a man is to be in condition, would you allow him to have a Corinthian girl as his fair friend? Certainly not. Neither would you approve of the delicacies, as they are thought, of Athenian confectionery? Certainly not. All such feeding and living may be rightly compared by us to melody and song composed in the panharmonic style, and in all the rhythms. Exactly. Their complexity engendered license, and here disease, whereas Simplistian music was the parent of temperance in the soul and simplicity and gymnastic of health in the body most true he said but when intemperance and diseases multiply in a state halls of justice and medicine are always being opened and the arts of the doctor and the lawyer give themselves airs finding how keen is the interest which not only the slaves but the freemen of a city take about them of course and yet what greater proof can there be of a bad and disgraceful state of education than this that not only artisans and the meaner sort of people need the skill of first-rate physicians and judges but also those who would profess to have had a liberal education is it not disgraceful and a great sign of want of good breeding that a man should have to go abroad for his law and physic because he has none of his own at home and must therefore surrender himself into the hands of other men whom he makes lords and judges over him of all things he said the most disgraceful would you say most i replied when you consider that there is a further stage of evil in which a man is not only a lifelong litigant passing all his days in the courts either as plaintiff or defendant but is actually led by his bad taste to pride himself on his litigiousness he imagines that he is a master in dishonesty able to take every crooked turn and wriggle into and out of every hole bending like a withy and getting out of the way of justice and all for what? In order to gain small points not worth mentioning. He not knowing that so to order his life as to be able to do without a napping judge is a far higher and nobler sort of thing. Is that not still more disgraceful? Yes, he said, that is still more disgraceful. Well, I said, and to require the help of medicine, not when a wound has to be cured, or on occasion of an epidemic, but just because, by indolence and a habit of life such as we have been describing, Men fill themselves with waters and winds, as if their bodies were a marsh, compelling the ingenious sons of Asclepius to find more names for diseases, such as flatulence and catarrh. Is this not, too, a disgrace? Yes, he said, they do certainly give very strange and newfangled names to diseases. Yes, I said, and I do not believe that there were any such diseases in the days of Asclepius. And this I infer from the circumstance that the hero Eurypylus, after he had been wounded in Homer, Drinks a posset of premium wine well besprinkled with parley meal and grated cheese, which are certainly inflammatory, and yet the sons of Asclepius who were at the Trojan War do not blame the damsel who gives him the drink, or rebuke Patroclus, who is treating his case. Well, he said, that was surely an extraordinary drink to be given to a person in his condition. Not so extraordinary, I replied, if you bear in mind that in former days, as is commonly said, before the time of Herodicus, the guild of Asclepius did not practice our present system of medicine, which may be said to educate diseases. But Herodotus, being a trainer, and himself of a sickly constitution, by a combination of training and doctoring found out a way of torturing, first and chiefly himself, and secondly the rest of the world. How was that? He said. By the invention of lingering death. For he had a mortal disease which he perpetually tended, and as recovery was out of the question, He passed his entire life as a valetudinarian. He could do nothing but attend upon himself, and he was in constant torment whenever he departed in anything from his usual regimen, and so dying hard, by the help of science he struggled on to old age. A rare reward of his skill. Yes, I said, a reward which a man might fairly expect who never understood that. If Asclepius did not instruct his descendants in valetudinarian arts, the omission arose, not from ignorance or inexperience of such a branch of medicine, but because he knew that in all well-ordered states every individual has an occupation to which he must attend, and has therefore no leisure to spend in continually being ill. This we remark in the case of the artisan, but, ludicrously enough, do not apply the same rule to people of the richer sort. "'How do you mean?' he said. "'I mean this. When a carpenter is ill, he asks the physician for a rough and ready cure.' An emetic, or a purge, or a cautery, or the knife. These are his remedies. And if some one prescribes for him a course of dietetics, and tells him that he must swathe and swaddle his head, and all that sort of thing, he replies at once that he has no time to be ill, and that he sees no good in a life which is spent in nursing his disease to the neglect of his customary employment. And therefore, bidding good bye to this sort of physician, he resumes his ordinary habits, and either gets well and lives and does his business, or If his constitution fails, he dies, and has no more trouble. Yes, he said, a man in his condition of life ought to use the art of medicine thus far only. Has he not, I said, an occupation? And what profit would be there in his life if he were deprived of this occupation? Quite true, he said. But with the rich man this is otherwise. Of him we do not say that he has any specially appointed work which he must perform, if he would live. He is generally supposed to have nothing to do." then you never heard of the saying of facilities, that as soon as a man has a livelihood he should practice virtue? Nay, he said, I think that he had better begin somewhat sooner. Let us not have a dispute about this, I said, but rather ask ourselves, is the practice of virtue obligatory on a rich man, or can he live without it? And if obligatory on him, then let us raise a further question, whether this dieting of disorders, which is an impediment to the application of the mind in carpentering and the mechanical arts, does not equally stand in the way of the sentiment of facilities. Of that, he replied, there can be no doubt. Such excessive care of the body, when carried beyond the rules of gymnastic, is most inimical to the practice of virtue. Yes, indeed, I replied, and equally incompatible with the management of a house, an army, or an office of state, and, what is most important of all, irreconcilable with any kind of study, or thought, or self-reflection." There is a constant suspicion that headache and giddiness are to be ascribed to philosophy, and hence all practicing or making trial of virtue in the higher sense is absolutely stopped, for a man is always fancying that he is being made ill, and is in constant anxiety about the state of his body. Yes, likely enough, and therefore our politic Asclepius may be supposed to have exhibited the power of his art only to persons who, being generally of healthy constitution and habits of life, had a definite ailment." Such as these he cured by purges and operations, and made them live as usual, herein consulting the interest of the State. But bodies which diseases had penetrated through and through he would not have attempted to cure by gradual process of evacuation and infusion. He did not want to lengthen out good-for-nothing lives, or have weak fathers begetting weaker sons. If a man was not able to live in the ordinary way he had no business to cure him, for such a cure would have been of no use either to himself or to the State then, he said, you regard Asclepius as a statesman. Clearly, and his character is further illustrated by his sons. Note that they were heroes in the days of old, and practised the medicines of which I am speaking at the siege of Troy. You will remember how, when Pandarus wounded Menelaus, they sucked the blood out of the wound and sprinkled soothing remedies. But they never prescribed what the patient was afterwards to eat or drink in the case of Menelaus, any more than in the case of Eurypylus. The remedies, as they conceived— were enough to heal any man who, before he was wounded, was healthy and regular in his habits, and even though he did happen to drink a positive pramian wine, he might get well all the same. But they would have nothing to do with unhealthy and intemperate subjects, whose lives were of no use either to themselves or others. The art of medicine was not designed for their good, and though they were as rich as Midas, the sons of Asclepius would have declined to attend them. They were very acute persons, these sons of Asclepius." Naturally so, I replied. Nevertheless, the tragedians and Pendar, disobeying our behests, although they acknowledge that Asclepius was the son of Apollo, say also that he was bribed into healing a rich man who was at the point of death, and for this reason he was struck by lightning. But we, in accordance with the principle already affirmed by us, will not believe them when they tell us both, if he was the son of a god, we maintain that he was not avaricious, or, if he was avaricious, he was not the son of a god. End of Book 3. Part 3. Recording by Jim Allman, Houston, Texas.